today we continue our series uh, in Mark chapter 1. If you open your Bible there to verse 35, and I've entitled the message, Ministry That Makes a Difference. Ministry that makes a difference is blessed by God. Without God's blessing, there will be no ministry that makes a difference. And so today we're going to look at three realities to be engaged in ministry that makes a difference, and they're indispensable realities. Let's read through the text uh, first. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. We can see here, just reading this short account, how the ministry of Jesus made a difference in people's lives. And I don't know about you, but I long to be involved in ministry that makes a difference. I don't want to go through the motions of preaching, preparing, doing all these things. You don't want to go through the motions of coming in and just sitting here unchanged and seeing no lives changed. That's not what God's about. And so I'm excited to share with us these three indispensable realities to be engaged in ministry that makes a difference. The first one we see right at the outset, the first indispensable reality is an earnestness to pray. Jesus went early to a solitary place. He got away from everyone, secluded himself so that he could talk to the Father Why? Because prayer is a necessity. We see the necessity of prayer. If we review all the ministry that Jesus is involved in after his baptism, just remember what all we've talked about, how he drove out demons, he healed people. Um, All these challenges that he did, he called people to ministry. His schedule was full. You can't say Jesus was lazy or he had all this downtime His schedule was full, but it was never too full for prayer. How about ours? Do we get so occupied with our jobs and our responsibilities and our families, and it is overwhelming, that we don't realize the necessity of prayer, of bringing things before God? And Jesus recognized that because he had a full day of Sabbath work. And he was drained. Ministry can be spiritually draining. He knew he needed to talk to the Father. 
And it's interesting because they go off to look for him, and it says in verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. Notice it doesn't say Simon and the disciples because they weren't acting like disciples. If they were being genuine disciples of Jesus, they would have probably been off praying themselves. So it says Jesus, or Simon and the companions. Prayer is an indispensable link for power in ministry. If we were to flip over just a few pages, but let me just share with you in Mark chapter 5, there's a woman who has an issue of blood. She has a blood disorder for 12 years. She has seen many doctors. She has spent everything she had and to no avail. And then she merely touches the hem of the garment of Jesus and she is instantly cured of her illness. And when that happened, Jesus said he recognized immediately that power had gone out of him. Because when we're involved in ministry, power does go out of us and we have to refill that power by coming to the necessity of prayer in our lives and leaning on, G leaning on God for ministry. So the necessity of prayer is this. It is intentional, not accidental. We don't accidentally develop a prayer life. We don't accidentally just in start engaging in passionate prayer. And if you are not involved in passionate prayer in your life, you won't start it overnight. Maybe pick a day or two where you say, I am setting aside this time to pray and seek the face of God. Start off with five minutes. See if you can pray. Set your timer on your phone. See if you can engage in passionate praying for five minutes and then move the clock up again. It's like exercising. You don't start off running a marathon exercising. You have to gradually build up to that. And so it's intentional. It is not accidental. It has to be deliberate, not by chance. And how do we know that? Well, let's look at the example of when you courted your wife. Remember when you were dating? Did you do some things that were intentional or was it all accidental? No, it was very intentional what you did. You bought flowers. You took her to special places. You gave her special gifts. You did all these things. And the wives are saying, whatever happened to those, by the way? <laughs> right? I remember my brother one time. He drove from Michigan down to Ohio 200 miles just to put a white rose on his wife's to be car and drove back home and didn't even talk to her I'm like are you out of your mind <laughs> but it was intentional there was an effort there it wasn't accidental we intentionally do those things I intentionally took my wife to Coney Island for her birthday this year in Huron not New York <laughs> and she loved it she's been back several times but intentional. We need to be intentional in our prayer, not accidental. Oswald Chambers said this, though, when we, in our prayer, the intentionality of our prayer is this. Prayer is getting ourselves attuned to God, not getting God attuned to us. Listen to that carefully. Because so many times we come to God with our grocery list and we say, God, here's what I want you to do for me. And yes, he wants us to ask him for those things, but God may say, I have some things on my list I want you to do for me. <laughs> and getting us attuned to him. What is his plan? What is his agenda in my life? 
I remember a guy in our, the church we came from, he, he said he used to pray, God, destroy my plans for yours. <laughs> destroy my plans for yours. That's not an easy prayer to pray, is it? Destroy my plans for yours. That's in essence what he was saying. I think about Abraham Lincoln. When he prayed for wisdom, he said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My wisdom and all that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. So it has to be intentional, not accidental. It also has to be regular, not random. We develop a habit of prayer. Jesus, while it tells us here, very early in the morning he went out to pray, don't think that that was the only time he did it. Many times in Scripture we see where he went out early in a solitary place to get away from the crowds, away from the noise, to focus on his relationship with the Father. If we are going to have a ministry that makes a difference, it will come because we are engaged in passionate prayer individually and corporately as a church. It won't happen any other way. Prayer Magazine had an article some 20 years ago, and here's what they said about prayer. Prayer can do what political action cannot, what education cannot, what military might cannot, what planning committees cannot. All these are impotent by comparison. Prayer can move mountains. It can change human hearts. It can change families, neighborhoods, cities, and nations. It's the ultimate source of power of Almighty God. Some of you might remember R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was born in the middle of the 1800s. He started Biola University. And then uh, he began a ministry in Minneapolis where he pastored a church. And he came to, as he learned about his congregation, he learned about two husbands who were unconverted, unsaved, lost. Their wives came to church. They didn't. And he put them on his prayer list, and he began praying for them regularly to give their lives to Christ. Well, he then felt called to get further education, so he went over to Germany. The two men were left unconverted. But when he left Minneapolis and went to Germany to study theology, he kept them on his prayer list and he kept praying for them regularly and faithfully. He came back to the States as an evangelist. He was holding special meetings in Minneapolis for several nights. He gave a strong gospel presentation. And that evening, those two men who did not know each other whose wives did not know each other, were sitting side by side in the service. They stood up and they gave their lives to Christ. He had prayed for over two decades. Over two decades. You see, ministry that makes a difference is going to be engaged in prayer. It's vital that we are engaged in prayer. We not only see its necessity, but we see the sincerity in prayer. Jesus was very sincere. He wasn't going out there to make a name for himself. He was getting away from everyone. The sincerity, when you get alone and you're in your closet and nobody else can see what you're doing, that shows you the sincerity of your heart, what you're really about. And what was Jesus doing? Well, I think one of the things he would have been doing was spiritual reflection. Spiritual reflection. 
And even the psalmist said, search me, O God. Search me. I invite you to look into the inner recesses of my heart, and is there anything in me that is killing ministry that would make a difference for you? Am I being a stumbling block? Is there some seed of doubt that the enemy has sown in my life that is hindering my ministry? Have I drifted from you? Am I drifting from you? Is there something that has taken away my confidence and trust that has shaken my faith? Am I operating in my daily life with an earthly perspective or am I looking at things with an eternal mindset? I think a second thing that this prayer retreat does, it's a personal refreshment. We refresh ourselves. It tells us in Isaiah 40, 31, they who wait for the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. There is personal refreshment. When we come to the Lord, he's able to infuse us with fresh power, with fresh strength, and remind us of who he is. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If you find yourself walking around like a zombie spiritually, maybe it's because you've neglected the prayer closet too long. And it's time to get back to the prayer closet and get along with God and let him refresh you. Thirdly, intimate fellowship. Intimate fellowship. Matthew 6, 6 says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There is reward. <laughs> there is reward for waiting on the Lord. I think about people that will wait in line for 45 minutes for an amusement park ride. I mean, they'll just stand there and wait and wait and wait. Why? Because the reward at the end, the 60-second ride, that thrill. Well, how much more should we be waiting before the Father because of the reward that is ours? So it is an indispensable reality. The second indispensable reality we want to look at this morning is the eagerness to serve. Jesus had an eagerness to serve for his Father. Notice what he says in verse 38. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus knew what the Father called him to do, and he was going to do it with all the passion and strength that God would give him. He knew for many years, even as a boy, that God had called him. Look at this verse in Luke 2.49. Why were you searching for me? He's like 12 years old in the temple. He asked, don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or as some uh, translations say, that I had to be about my father's business. About the father's business. And so serving God is being engaged in the father's business. How are you engaged in the father's business? with people that you are rubbing shoulders with? How are you engaged? How are you working to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ? I had, there's an insert in the bulletin 
that I put in there a prayer list for Friend Day for November 11th. I would like you to put names down here and ask God to give you a burden, a burning desire to see them come to Christ, for you to invite them. Do you know what would happen if you invited people and you prayed for them and they started coming to church? you know what would happen? You would be more passionate about praying. You would start seeing ministry that makes a difference. You would come with an expectation that, hey, I want God to speak to them. Maybe even I'll pray a little more for the pastor. Boy, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I mean, that would be awesome. But it would be even more awesome to see them give their lives to Christ. That you intentionally and not accidentally put them on your list. That you regularly and not randomly pray for them. That they would come to Christ. I want to encourage you to do that. To make that a part of your prayer list. And be praying and reaching out to them even over this next month. And you don't have to wait till November 11th to bring them. Bring them all along. Encourage them to come. To be engaged in the Father's business. Here's what I see in Jesus. Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else. I see no hesitation. I see no fear. I see no worries. I, see, I don't see, well, we've never done it this way before. <laughs> I don't see any of that. I don't see any guilt trip. I don't see any begging from God. He is driven with a passion, and he's going to the nearby villages where he has a circle of influence. And what is your circle of influence? You have a circle of influence that God has given you. Reach out to that circle of influence. If you work in the hospital, reach out to the nurses, the doctors, the medical staff, the anesthesiologist. If you're a farmer, reach out to farmers. Reach out to the seed sellers and the different people that work on your equipment. And if you're a teacher, other teachers, faculty, students, I mean, any place you have an opportunity for that circle of influence, God has placed you there for that opportunity to reach them. Do you have an eagerness to serve so they will come to Christ? If you want a ministry that makes a difference, become eager to serve. Say, God, I'm available. I want to be engaged in the Father's business. And Jesus, what did he do? He preached. He showed people their need. He showed them that they needed Christ. For even the Son of Man, he said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The great commission is that we go. We're to take the gospel to the lost. And how are we to serve? We are to serve with the strength that God provides. We don't need to go in our own strength, our own power, our own ability, we go with the strength that God provides. He tells us in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, that we use our gifts to serve others. We serve with the strength that God provides. So the second indispensable reality is that we have an eagerness to serve. The third indispensable reality and really, without the, if we don't have these first two, the third one can't happen. We have to have an earnestness to pray. 
and we have to have an eagerness to serve. If we have these two things, this third one comes. And here's what it is. Effectiveness to change lives. There will be lives changed when we pray and when we serve. Lives will be changed. How badly do you want to see lives changed? How badly? Notice what Jesus does in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. You can hear the desperation. When somebody gets on their knees, they're pretty desperate. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Now, William Barclay in his commentary talks about three types of leprosy. I want to mention them briefly. The first type of leprosy is a nodular or tubercular leprosy. That is where the person is very lethargic. He has pain in his joints. He has discolored patches, especially on his back, turned brown. He gets nodules that form on his face, his nose, his cheeks, his forehead. His face becomes a horrible, horrible picture. Nodules begin to ulcerate and give off a foul discharge. The eyebrows fall out. The voice becomes hoarse because it is ulcerated on his vocal cords. His hands and his feet ulcerate. The average course of the disease, they said, is nine years, and it ends in mental decay, coma, and untimely death. The second type of leprosy is anesthetic leprosy. The initial stages are the same, but this impacts the nerve trunks where they have no longer sensation to touch. So they can get burned or something can happen to them and they have no feeling left. They get blisters, patches, their muscles waste away. Their tendons contract so that their hands become like claws. Their feet become ulcerated, they lose fingers and toes, and eventually hands and feet can be absolutely rotted off their body. It takes 20 to 30 years for this disease to take its full effect. The third type of leprosy is the most common type, even in Jesus' day, and it was a mixture of the two. It was a mixture of nodular and anesthetic And so what did they do? Lepers were called unclean. They were the off-scouring of society. They were outcasts. They were shamed. They were banished from their families and community. They had to live outside the camp. They had no physical contact whatsoever. They had to wear certain clothing, 
And because of their polluted presence, they had to holler, unclean, unclean. Think about that. What a horrible way to live. In isolation. Horrible way to live. What does Jesus do? Let's look at this again now that we know. Filled with compassion, verse 41, he reached out his hand and he touched the untouchable. The clean touched the unclean. The holy touched the shamed. The insider touched the outsider. Too many times do we not write people off and say, you know what, I, I, I'm not going to associate with those kind of people. That's not the kind of people I rub shoulders with. No, 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 that's not the kind of person I want to be around. I despise those kind of people. Well, why did Jesus do this? This man is in physical pain. He's in mental anguish. He's heartbroken, banished, and totally shunned from society. Why would Jesus do that? Here's why I think he did it. The love of his Father controlled him. When you and I are filled with the love of God, and what is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and what your neighbor is yourself, it's going to come automatically. If you are filled with the love of God, you're going to be filled with love for your neighbor. God so loved the world that he gave. The love of the Father controlled him. Here's what it says in 1 John. We love because he first loved us. There's no love in me apart from the love of the Father. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's clear language, isn't it? I just want to briefly mention, though, four compassion killers. Four compassion killers. The first one I want to mention is legalism. Legalism is all about externals. I check the box. You know what? I'm in church every Sunday. That person's not. You know, I do this every day. I read my Bible. I do, the, I do all these things. Well, you can do it and be like a Pharisee. Jesus condemned the Pharisees. They did all these things, and they checked off all the boxes, but it was legalistic. They had no love in their heart for the leper. They had no love in their heart for the sick, the diseased, the lost. And so Jesus condemns them. Legalism will kill love. Do you have legalism in your heart? I had it in mind when I was in my early walk with the Lord. I probably still have some legalism in me that needs to go. In all reality, 
You see someone that has a tattoo or they have piercings, and what do you do? You automatically judge them. That's legalism. It's not love. Jesus looks past all that. He sees the man for who he is and his need. Secondly, selfishness. Selfishness is a compassion killer. It's my time, it's my money, it's my life, it's my car, it's my house, it's my business, it's my clothes, it's my food. Mine. Really? When you do that, you kill love. Thirdly, insecurity. When you are so wrapped up with your own insecurities, you're not going to reach out to somebody else. You have your own fears and anxieties and struggles. How are you going to reach out to somebody else? Make a fool out of yourself? You know what? We all have insecurity. <laughs> That's why we have Jesus. He is the only one that can make us secure. We have insecurities. We have inadequacies. We have incapabilities. But God says, I go in the strength that I provide. Reach out to that person. Show them the love of Christ. Are there people in the congregation you don't yet know? And what are you doing to get to know them? To show the love of Christ. Say, you know what? I haven't met you yet. What's your name? What's your story? How is God working in your life? Would you take that opportunity to do that? The fourth one is pride. You are too proud to reach out to someone. They're not my kind of people. They're too messy. You know what the problem is with pride? We are blind to our own brokenness. That's the problem with pride. We do not recognize our own brokenness. And that's a problem. How can I show grace to someone else if I don't realize that I am a debtor to grace myself? I want to show you a picture of a gal. This was actually off of Facebook. I don't always get sermons off Facebook, but this is, was too good to pass up. I don't know this lady at all, but she posted her story out there. The picture on the left was her three years ago. This is the same person on the right three years later. What made the difference? Somebody had compassion. That's what made the difference. She says this, if someone would have told me three years ago what the love of Christ would do in my heart and life, I would have given you and God the middle finger. If someone would have told me that in the next three years, that same God that I spent the last nine running away from would restore relationships with my family and with my children, out of fear, I would have told you I'll only mess it up. Three years ago, I had two options, to die or live and be completely honest, I didn't want either of the two. 
But somewhere within my broken heart, I chose to reach out that day and went to detox. Kicking and screaming, I might add. I had about two weeks clean when I was invited to a Bible study at a little coffee shop that I really had no interest in going to at the time. It was at that place that I met a woman and eventually an entire family, whether by word or selfless deed, would show me the grace and love of Christ. There was something different in this woman that the Lord used to speak truth into my heart. She still does. Samantha Sutton Duncan and Heath Duncan, I am forever grateful to you both for loving me and showing me grace and a different way of life. I'm grateful to my family, all of my sisters and brothers, for all that you are, which is a lot of goodness. Thank you to all the new relationships and reconnections that have been beautifully placed in my life. I deeply love you all, and I'm so excited for what the future holds. But beyond all the many blessings and even beyond my sobriety, I am thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't deserve a single ounce of your never-ending eternal love, and yet here you are still loyal and so faithful to all your promises. You and I both know, God, that if it wouldn't have mattered if a million someones told me what all you could do within my life over the past three years, but you had a very specific way of revealing it to my heart because you know every intricate part about us. And then she closes with this. To all the men and women reading this that struggle with addiction, there is hope. You are not too far gone. You are not forgotten. And you have a Father in heaven longing for you to let him in. To the children and families affected by addiction, do not lose hope and never cease praying. Coming back to our text, the leper. Here's how love is going to work. We have to remember our own brokenness to humble us. Here is the reality of this passage. We are the leper. I'm the leper. You are the leper. We are the unclean, we are the hopeless, we are the helpless, we are the outcast, we are the shamed, we are the one with an incurable disease called sin. And Jesus is the only cure for sin. That's it. He is the only cure for sin. Let's bow our heads. While you do, I want to ask you about these indispensable realities. How about an earnestness to pray? You know, we can beat ourselves up because every one of us will say, you know what, we never pray enough. 
The goal here is not to beat ourselves up. The goal is to say, God, would you rekindle in me an earnestness to pray? I need that. This is not just for you. I need this. An earnestness to pray. That it would be intentional and not accidental. Regular and not random. What about eagerness to serve? Are you engaged in the Father's business? Are you serving with the strength that God provides? And thirdly, what about the effectiveness to change lives? As you look back over the course of your short history, who is God bringing across your path? Maybe there's a young lady like the one I just showed on the screen a few moments ago. Maybe there's a young man. Maybe there's a teenage boy, a teenage girl. You've written them off. God hasn't. He sees them with an incurable disease, but it's cured by the cross, the gospel. We need to remember our own brokenness. I'm the leper. You are the leper. Jesus died for lepers. He died for us deplorables. It's de it would be deplorable for us not to reach out to another deplorable because I forgot who I am. May God remind us of who we really are. And reach out with compassion and touch the unclean with the gospel. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he died for you. You have an incurable disease called sin, and Jesus is the only one that can take your sin away. You can't take it away yourself. It doesn't matter how many sermons you've heard or how many prayers you've prayed, if you have not genuinely been convicted of your sin, and repented of your sin and turn from your sin and trust the compassion of Christ, the provision of Christ, you are lost. But Jesus is reaching out with his nail-scarred hand and saying, I died for your disease. Would you give it to me? And would you invite me into your life? So you can be involved in ministry that makes a difference. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't leave. If the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart, humble yourself. Talk to myself or someone else. Say, I need Jesus to touch me, to clean me, make me a new person. Maybe you're here today and you have been discouraged with your prayer life. You've been discouraged with your service. 
because you don't see a difference, maybe you need to rekindle that love first for Christ. And he will rekindle that love for others. Would you make your prayer list and passionately pray, intentionally invite them with expectation that God is going to work. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Hero. Have a blessed day.